0: Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Those are verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 55, which is a psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, April the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it. Um, we're looking at Jeremiah uh, 17, verses 5 to 10, and then also verses 14 to 17 of that same chapter. The gospel reading today is John 12, verses 27 to 36, and the epistle is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So we just had to deal with this. Maybe two months ago, this Jeremiah passage, I I, I had to preach on it, actually, back in Epiphany. Um, It's it's a a wonderful passage of, of contrast um, between one who trusts in the Lord versus one who trusts in man, in the same way that you could see Psalm 1 and 2 being the same, the, the same kind of contrast. Psalm 1 talks about this same image, this tree planted by streams of water, and, and talks about what it means to be sort of rooted in him and attached to him, as opposed to what happens in Chap- in uh, Psalm 2, which is, why do the heathen rage? And then God laughs at them uh, because of the impotence of the threats that they make against him and the words that they speak. <clears throat> here in Jeremiah, we get sort of the opposite way around Chapter or Psalm 1 is uh, an ode to what it looks like to be found in the Lord and to be rooted in the Lord, and Psalm 2 is, is the opposite of that. And here, the order is reversed. So what we get is thus says the Lord cursed is the man <laughs> cursed that's what a Southerner cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. In other words, there's no hope in that. That's a failed project right from the beginning. If that's what your trust is in, then then you really don't have anything. And it's true. If you think, I mean, it takes two seconds to figure that out. That that the reality is why would I put my trust in something that's not eternal, and why would I put my trust in something that's changeable? So something that could change its mind, change its character, even Um, reveal character that I'm not even aware of. I mean, it's true in my own life, right? Don't trust in me. No, 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 no. That's a big mistake. No, put your trust in the Lord. He's cursed as the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. In other words, he's going to live in a miserable place. There's there's nothing good about this. But, But what is that man like? He's like a shrub in the desert. Something with stunted growth that's not going to grow any bigger because where it is, it's not going to receive the nutrients that it needs to get larger. And so when we put our trust in men, when we do that, then, then we've committed ourselves at some level to be in a shrub in the desert. Because ultimately, man will fail us or man will die. You know, it, it's, we're, we're not eternal. And he is. And he is a fixed point. We're not we just not. We, as much as we'd like our character to be 100% all the time, it's just not. So <clears throat> that in contrast to that, what we see is, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves will remain green. And it's an- not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, because it always has what it needs. So attaching yourself to the Lord, trusting in Him, means that you have a never-ending supply and that you don't ever have anything to fear. And the difference is the the first person, the one who trusts in man, is like a shrub in the desert. The one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots. It's a powerful image, and it's, it's a very simple image that says, take your pick. Which way you want this? Do you want to be like a tree planted by the stream of water, or do you want to be like a shrub in the desert. And it's the same choice over and over again throughout Scripture and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the choice that Moses lays before the people in Deuteronomy. It's the choice that Joshua lays before the people uh, at the end of that book. It's like the choice that Elijah sets before the people when he's up on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Choose. Make a decision. But you can't... You have to see it as two options, not a both-and situation. It's an either-or situation. So he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And we need to understand that we need a regenerate heart and that my heart can want things that are wrong for me. They can want things in such a way that it takes me away from him. And it can destroy my faith because my heart wants something God doesn't want me to have, at least not at, at that particular time maybe. And, and the problem becomes then we're so attached to that thing that, that we can't come off the dime on it, and we will lose our faith. I've known people who lost their faith because God didn't answer their prayers in the way that they wanted him to answer them. And I get it. I I absolutely understand it. But it's a constant need for God to prove himself when he did prove himself on the cross. He proved his love for us on that cross. So the fact that we don't get everything we want in life, or at least don't get it on the timetable we would like to have it, is no indication of God's lack of love. His love was proved once and for all on the cross. Jeremiah cries out, "'Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come.'" In other words, if what you've prophesied is true, Jeremiah, let's see it, big boy. Come on. We don't see evidence of that. He said, "'I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You're my refuge in the day of disaster.'" So Jeremiah is in that place where he's under so much fire, and he fears for his life in different uh, times of his life in this in this prophetic word. And and what he's saying is, Lord, I, I am just wrecked. I'm wrecked. I feel like I poured out everything that I can do, and and I don't. Not only do I not see you protecting me, I mean, I am being protected. I'm not dead, but it's just awful to have all these people coming against me all the time and taunting me by saying, hey, if you're right, where is it? We don't see that judgment. And so he, it's not that he's praying for judgment to come. He wants some vindication. That's what he wants. He wants to know that he has not prophesied in vain, that the things that he has said are true. thats That's what Jeremiah wants. It's not going to be a pleasure to him to see these things come to pass, but... He needs some vindication he needs to to say, "Lord, I just need to know if I've actually done your work, done your work and your mission. I don't know, I don't see any evidence of that right now and and yet there's a burning in me that makes me continue to do the work in spite of the fact that I don't see any fruit from that work in the gospel passage today remember what had happened yesterday was is that the the greeks who had come to the passover festival had come seeking jesus and then his his response says it's time now the time has come to be glorified finally after multiple times when jesus said my time has not yet come or when john tells us this didn't happen because his time had not yet come now he says now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour you imagine the disciples listen to this and thinking what do you mean save you from this hour they just acclaimed you as king and now the whole world is coming looking for you what do you mean save you from this hour you you don't want to be this but for this purpose i've come to this hour father glorify your name so it's a prayer then a voice from heaven came from heaven i've glorified it and i will glorify it again so I have done this and I will do it again. And he's about to do it again. And it won't look like glorification initially. It won't look like glorification from an earthly perspective until the resurrection happens. But the glorification has to take place at the cross because he's glorifying his name by showing revealing the depth of his love for sinful humanity by subjecting himself to us and by allowing us to put him on a cross the only truly righteous man that ever lived the only good man who ever lived to put him on a cross and crucify him and it's the depth of god's love is is the way that he glorifies himself is in his love his mercy his grace and his goodness The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, I didn't need God to say that. I didn't need the Father to say anything at all. I wanted you to understand that he's with me, and he has responded to me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It seems like an odd path to glorification. He starts this prayer, with, or starts this whole thing with, Now's the time for me to be glorified. And then he prays that God would save him from that. And then he talks about him being lifted up will be the glorification. But he also says, now is the time for this judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I'm sure everybody standing around him heard the first part of that. Now is time for the judgment of the world. The cosmos, the the rest of the world—not so much Judaism, but but the rest of the world—but but he means all of us. Everything is getting ready to be judged, and it's all going to be judged the same way. And and so it sounds, from an earthly perspective, like a great thing because right. What so the Romans are going to be overthrown? Is that what you're saying? The ruler of this world is going to be overthrown, so the emperor is going to be thrown down as well. That's fantastic. But that's not what he means by any stretch of the imagination. They don't couldn't possibly imagine that when he talks about being lifted up he's talking about on a cross but it's the same thing he told Nicodemus that unless the son of man be lifted up and like a serpent in the wilderness like the serpent that Moses made put on the stick and raised up for all the people to gaze at and, and those who were being afflicted by the serpents that were biting them and killing them if they looked on that serpent on the cross stick then they would be saved and so it's looking at gazing at but it's it's all that's required here is faith it's not a work it's faith because it can't be a work because it makes no sense to look up and say okay so i'm going to put this bronze serpent on a stick and that'll be for your healing that's all you got to do for your healing oh okay sure um so but it's exactly what does happen it's exactly what jesus said has to happen here He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? It must be somebody different from the Christ. So, okay, you're claiming to be the Son of Man. Okay, well, that sounds different from Messiah. So who is this person? Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid themse- himself from them. And it's one of the works in Judaism, one of the, one of the beliefs in Judaism, is, is that the, the crowns, I've, I've told you about this before, because when they say at Sinai, we will do and we will listen, what, what they said was there were two crowns given to each Jew that day. And after the sin of the golden calf, 40 days later, those crowns, the angels came and retrieved those crowns and, and, and buried them all over, the, all over the earth, scattered them all over the earth and buried them. And it's the, the job of Jews and Judaism to, to plant themselves in all these places. And by doing the mitzvah, by doing the commandments, they will show righteousness and that will unearth these crowns. Well, those, the, the interesting thing about those crowns is they're crowns of light. And so you would be sons of light if you do these things. And so what what is the work? The work is to reveal the light in the places where you are by, by, by faithfulness and obedience to the Word of God. And so when Jesus speaks of this sons of light thing, then, then we're to show ourselves— to be sons of light, by walking in his light, in the same way Moses' face shone after it met with God, so should it be with us. But it should be with us continually. There's no reason for that to fade. We have constant access to him, and that's how we show that we're children of the light and that we're worthy of that light. And it's the same proclamation we will do and we will listen. I don't know everything I need to know because I don't know everything that's going to happen in my life. I'm just going to start down the path of obedience, and I'm going to walk in that, and I'm going to trust you to tell me what I need to know as we go along. In the epistle today, Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, he writes this epistle. I should have mentioned this before, but he writes this epistle from a prison in Rome. So Paul is a guy who's under a great deal of pressure, but his concern still is turned outward. It's for the churches that he's established because it's his greatest desire to see those things remain. That's his work. And so what he's doing here is checking up on it, and he's encouraging the people to stand firm in what they've already received and known. Whatever new truth the Spirit leads you into can't conflict with the old truth. So you need to settle certain things once and for all, In order that, you can continue in the truth. He said, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know what the disagreement is between these two people, but Paul is specifically writing to somebody in the church at Philippi and saying, help these women agree. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the man in prison. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, get along. <laughs> Don't be quarreling with one another. Don't be doing all those kinds of things that, that the church too often does. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. In other words, he's there. The power of the Holy Spirit is with you. He is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So don't just do supplication. Have thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Too often we can just present a laundry list of requests and forget to ascribe him the worth that's due his name. We do that by praying, but we also, for our own sake, need to give thanks and praise to him in our prayers as well. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus if you do these things. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It doesn't seem like we'd have to be told that, does it? I mean, it seems like we would just sort of naturally think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, or worthy of praise. It seems like that would just be a natural thing for us. And I'll just leave that comment right there, (laughs) because it's not. (laughs) What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's promising that, that the God of peace will be with him if they do the things they have learned and received and heard and seen in him. How can he assure them of that? Because he himself has experienced it, does experience it, and knows that he will continue to experience if he abides in the Lord. So in all things, we're called to abide in him in order that we might experience that peace and that presence Of God that brings peace in our lives. He says, look, I know the secret to this. I know the secret to having peace from right here in prison. I know what it is. It's to continue to do what I know to do. It's to continue to say the things God has revealed to me. It's to continue to do the work that I've been given to do. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to provide for me. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And that's an important thing for us because what could have happened, let's say Paul has need and the church fails to support him. And that's what he says. I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Apparently there was a period of time when, he, when they didn't seem concerned for Paul at all. And he was suffering and he had need. What he's saying is, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, because he trusted in the Lord. He could have gotten angry with them for failing to meet his needs, for failing to reach out for him when he needed them, let's say, in whatever way that might have been. But he didn't put his trust in them. So he's not going to be angry with them because he trusts God in all things. And that, that's a big transition for a lot of people to make. Most people never turn that corner, and none of us probably ever turn it permanently. It's a corner we constantly have to be turning because we're constantly tempted to be upset with other people. When, when instead, what we should be able to do is calm ourselves and say, the Lord has a plan and his will will be done. It's exactly what he was telling Jeremiah. Is no matter what it looks like and feels like for you outwardly, Jeremiah, I'm here, and that should be enough, and you will complete the work I've given you to do, and you're doing my work. So Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every way, circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and so what is this secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need that's not trusting in any of that it's just trusting in the lord and allowing him to be enough